0: Let's go to the book of Esther tonight. I attempted to introduce this book last time, and we spoke about God's providence. Remember that this is a book where God, His Word, prayer, faith, eternity, none are ever mentioned. And yet, we'll find God in the background working things out. He's always at work. And in this particular case, in the book of Esther, he's working on behalf of those who chose to remain in exile. They were taken captive by the Babylonians, but when they were released to go back to the land, many decided to stay. And I wanted you to take away from last time that God is always in complete control. He not only knows what is going on on the world stage, but He is directing it all. Nothing ever surprises God. He's never taken off guard. Our God knows the end from the beginning. We can trust that God is always at work, even when We may not see Him, or even when we may not think that God is at work, He is. Now, if you missed last week, I would ask you to go back and listen to it, because there was a lot that we talked about that I don't have time to review. But I want to read chapter 1 tonight, as we get a little bit deeper into this study. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. That in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all the princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom in the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble, The beds were of gold and silver, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zithar, and Carcas. Ben, are you in here tonight? Is he still looking for a, a name for his child? Uh, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the, but the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And and the next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, uh, Marcina and Memecum, Let me try this one again. Maimukin, The seven princes of Persia and Media. Believe it or not, I practice these ahead of time. It just doesn't always work out. Uh, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Memukin answered before the king and the princes... Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise, all the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. (laughs) I can't help but laugh at some of this. Um, If it please the king, let there go out a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she." And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of uh, Mamukin, for he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province, according to the writing thereof, into every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. There you go, folks. Amen. Alright. That, to me, is somewhat humorous. I will have to wait till next time to get into the humor of that, in my opinion. But, I'm not going to give you all the same boring details as last time, but remember, the house of Judah had been taken captive by the Babylonians for 70 years. Those 70 years came to an end when the Persians, led by Cyrus, took over the Babylonians and also took over their land. And what this did was it greatly expanded the kingdom of Persia, their empire. It's often called the Medo-Persian Empire in secular history. Or the, I practice this one too, bear with me, Akmenid. So we see in verse 1 that the kingdom expanded from India to Ethiopia, covering 127 provinces. For those of you that may be geographically challenged, that is a huge expanse that he was ruling over. In fact, it was the largest empire of that time, and it was one of the largest empires ever, certainly one of the largest of the ancient world. In verse 2, we see the setting is Shushan the palace. It was known secularly as Susa. And this had been the, the palace location for the Babylonians as well, uh, you'll read in Daniel 8.2 that Daniel was also at Shushan, the palace. And that's when the Babylonians were ruling. And so when the Persians took over, they just made it their palace as well. And this is where this feast is taking place, which makes a lot of sense because Shushan would have been located centrally within the empire. would have been a lot easier for everybody to get there for this celebration that we see in chapter 1. Um, Now, I mentioned Ahasuerus last time is a hard person to identify uh, both biblically at times and certainly in secular history. Many believe that Ahasuerus is the same as Xerxes, which is recorded in secular history. And in the Bible, it appears that Ahasuerus is the same as Artax Xerxes. Some believe that these are titles of the same position, but only given in different dialects. There are very uh, varying opinions, and I would need a lot more time to try to figure all that out, and I did not have it. So, the reason I bring this up again this week, though, is because if Xerxes of secular history is the same as Ahasuerus, then there is the belief that the reason for this great feast that we find taking place here in chapter 1 was also a political maneuver on behalf of Ahasuerus. You see, Xerxes, he attempted to do something no other empire has ever been able to do. He was trying to expand westward and connect east and west. And it's never happened. The the British Empire was the largest empire of all time, but it was very disjointed scattered throughout the world. There was not really just one conglomerate of the British Empire. And so the last attempt of the East and West trying to be merged into one, to my recollection, would have been when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The East is coming to the West, attacking, trying to merge those into one. And so I bring this up because on a side note, I find it very interesting that there's always been this battle between the East and the West. But God has never allowed one to take over the other to date. And what's interesting about this is because it's two different ideologies that you see taking place on the world stage. And we're seeing this take place currently with Russia and Ukraine. You're seeing the battle between the East and the West because Russia, of the East, doesn't want the West encroaching any further into their little backyard. And so we're still seeing this battle today with the East pushing against the West. Um, And so there has been some bleed over Turkey's always kind of been right there, bleeding over to east and west, and we even see that today, but there's never been a full takeover uh, to date. And so, the the Persian Empire, it had its roots in Iran, that's where people say it all started for the Persians, and and Xerxes, he wanted to expand all the way westward into Greece, but it ultimately failed. Now, I'll say more about that when we start chapter 2, it'll make more sense when we get there, but... As I was saying, the belief is that this great feast here in in chapter 1 was to bring all the leaders of the provinces together to get them to give their buy-in to Ahasuerus to go forward and conquer, try to conquer Greece. And this, this campaign, this is very interesting. This campaign is actually mentioned in Scripture in Daniel 11. Daniel received a lot of the histories so accurate that the, the uh, scholars and those who are textual critics, they'll say, well, Daniel must have been written after the fact because it's way too accurate to be something written ahead of time. But like I said, our God knows the end from the beginning. Amen? Amen. And so He's giving Daniel this information. Little, listen to what it says in Daniel eleven two, 2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold there shall stand up yet 3 kings in persia and the fourth shall be far richer than they all and by his strength through his riches shall he stir up all against the realm of grecia that's fascinating to think that that might be exactly what is happening here in chapter 1 i personally believe it's the same so xerxes he sought to to push further westward than any other eastern empire had ever Uh, sought to do. And perhaps that's the political reason we're seeing here, which lines up perfectly with Daniel 11. And then after that, in in verse 3 of Daniel 11, it talks about one rising up mightier, and that would have been Alexander the Great. I don't have time to get into all that, but Daniel 11 is a perfect chronological history of what took place from the Persians all the way through to Herod the Great. So I I covered all that a couple years ago when we were going through Daniel, um, the last chapters there in Daniel. But we see that uh, in verse 3, this is taking place in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign that he makes this feast. And in verse 4, he takes 180 days to show off all his stuff. How about those toys, eh, amen? I mean, that's a lot of toys. I mean, you come to my house, I can give you a tour of the house in, what, five minutes? Probably less. This guy takes 180 days. (laughs) This is incredible to me. And then after 180 days, he throws a seven-day celebration to cap off the celebration. Listen, it cost me enough money just to have turkey and Thanksgiving and Christmas. This guy was doing this for 187 days straight. How much money did he have? I don't know. But if it's the same as Daniel 11:2, it says that the fourth one that would rise up would have far more riches than all the rest. And somehow he was able to pull this off financially. And he showed them his glorious kingdom in the honor of his excellent... Majesty, Boy, that sounds reminiscent of the Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? We won't go there tonight. Now, I debated whether or not to give this message tonight. But some see a prophetic picture here in this 180-day period that he's taking to show off his kingdom. I'm going to give it to you, and you can do with it as you see fit. Amen? All right. I believe it's intriguing enough that it's worth giving it some thought. It might be considered controversial because it has to do with Vashti's rebellion against Ahasuerus. So i got to deviate from our verse-by-verse that I would normally do. But ultimately, I want to say this up front so nobody gets the wrong impression here. Ultimately, I believe that Vashti would have been well within her rights to refuse to come before Ahasuerus. The way in which she's being asked, He's inebriated. There's all kinds of things going on here. And just the laws of the Persians, she had every right to say no. We'll talk about that more next time. But I believe she's within her right to say no. But just for tonight, I want to consider this whole thought with her open disobedience to the king. Now, the prophetic picture of 180 days, some people say this is showing us a symbol of the 1800 years from Abraham... To Christ, Some see these 180 days here to be a picture of the 180 decades that took place between those two. Now, God told Abram, He said, I will make of thee a great nation. And then when you get to Moses, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God will say to Moses, Now therefore... If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. I know, sister, it's good preaching. Now, God... His will for Israel is not that they would have a priesthood, but that they would be a priesthood. You catching that? God's will for Israel was not that they would just have a few holy leaders, but that the whole of the nation would be holy. Everybody with me? But as the Bible unfolds, we learn that Israel failed. They, they never stuck with being what God wanted them to be. They had some glory days in there, but on a whole, they ended up failing. Before Moses passes off the scene, he says in Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8, For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? You see, there was no other nation that had God as close as Israel did. God gave them great blessings. He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. He led them by a cloud by day, a fire by day. By night, His glory showed up in the tabernacle. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them cities that they didn't build. He gave them houses full of goodly things that they didn't fill. And He gave them wells which they didn't dig. Vineyards which they never planted. He gave them a system of worship. He gave them law and order within their nation. He gave them the pattern of what to do here and what to do there, and how to take care of issues. He placed His name in the temple. And every time they rebelled, and every time they returned, God always forgave them. God attempted to display His glory and His majesty of His kingdom and for His name for 1,800 years. All because God... Desired a bride who would love and obey Him. But sadly, Israel refused. And we see in Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven chamberlains, like how I did it that way this time, that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, To bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. By the way, Vashti means beautiful. But look at what it says. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. You know, it's never good when you refuse the word of a king. Amen. Why? Because he has all power. It may be the right thing to do, but it's not going to end well. When you begin to refuse the the word of a king, there may come a point of no return. The king may eventually say off with his head or whatever they would say back in those days. Okay, this is a lively crowd tonight. Um, You can turn the king down too many times that you eventually cross His line in the sand. Listen to what is said when the period of the kings came to an end, and it's being summarized. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, "...and the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place." but they mocked the messengers of God and despised His words and misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. God sent them messengers because He was compassionate. And When God gives you His word through His messengers, God is not putting you down. God is being good to you in trying to lift you up. And God did this for Israel, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised His word, they abused His prophets, until His wrath finally was kindled to the point where there was no more remedy. When Vashti refused to honor and obey the king, Ahasuerus decided he was going to replace her. And then we read this royal commandment went forth in Esther chapter 1 and verse 19. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And so the belief is the prophetic picture here is said to be that when Israel decided to dishonor God, then God, the king, decided to turn His attention to those who would make up a a bride for His Son. A bride who would show her beauty. A bride who would show the world a better response to His commandments. A bride who wouldn't feel resentment a bride who wouldn't show open rebellion he wants a bride who will go just would go beyond just religious obligation and a bride that would happily serve honor obey worship god because they love their king Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 20 and 21 God said, I will hide my face from them. And by the way, many point to that verse as what is taking place in the book of Esther because God is not seen openly. It says, and I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For there are a very froward generation, children, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not god they have provoked me to anger with their vanities and i will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people and i will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation now the apostle paul in writing romans he referenced that passage that i just cited in romans 10 and verse 19 but then he wrote this in romans 11:11 11, 11. i say then have they speaking of israel have they stumbled that they should fall God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. In Vashti's refusal, the book of Esther now takes a turn. And the king is now going to look for another bride. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and 43, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures... The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now that Vashti has been deposed, she's been removed from the presence of the king, an invitation is now extended... In chapter 2, you can look along with these as I read if you'd like. Esther chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace. And then verse 4 says, And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And then verse 8 of chapter 2 says, So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace. And I'll stop there, but when Ahasuerus extended his invitation in search of a bride, it's interesting that he did not invite those who had... Positions of prominence. He did not invite those who had an elite bloodline. He didn't invite those who fit a particular mold or anything like that. In fact, the only requirement is that it be a young virgin that would please the king. And so this invitation, get this, it really goes out to whosoever will. And so we read in Esther 2.17, And the king loved Esther above all the women. Notice what it says here. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Vashti, she's been refused due to her unwillingness to please the king. Esther now has been chosen for her willingness to please the king. And as a result, Esther obtains grace and favor from the king. You see, Israel refused God as their king. You can read about that in 1 Samuel. I personally believe that was the transgression that needed to be finished. But anyway, that's a whole other study. But God would have His bride. And God's bride would find grace and favor in His sight, in the sight of the king of kings. And just as Ahasuerus was a Gentile married to a Jew... So the bride of Christ would be made up of Jew and Gentile. We are one body with one sacred head. And we are are made up of every tongue, tribe, nation, people. The, The middle wall of partition between the two has been broken down. And now there's access for all to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course there always was, but there was always that limit within the temple system that you could only go so far as a Gentile. But when Christ died, what happened? The veil in the temple was written in twain from top to bottom and access was granted to whosoever will. And so, in the opening here of Esther, we have the tale of two queens. One was, her name means beauty. She was beautiful. She had every advantage. She was already in the kingdom. She just refused to obey. But who would have ever thought that The queen that he would choose would be a poor, orphaned girl. I mean, just think about who he chose. Here's a girl that is still in exile. She's not even of their bloodline. And yet, when he goes looking for a queen, looking for a bride, he welcomes in a lowly, poor, exiled, orphaned Girl. Is that not a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us? Who would have thought that God would have chosen sinners stuck in exile in a sin-sick world? Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's not good. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near because of what Christ did for us. And who would have thought that God would have chosen someone like me? Or someone like you? Who are we to be chosen by the King to be made into His bride? Whoop! Listen, I had a fit studying this. Y'all need to like catch up with me. But He did choose us and He did so in His mercy and His grace. And now we who are in Christ tonight, we are the bride of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And why would God have it this way? Because the end of verse 29 says that no flesh should glory in His presence. And then later on in verse 31 there it says that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You know what's great about glorying in the Lord? You can glory in Him even when you had a bad day. You can glory in Him even when God gives you a tough road to hoe. You can glory in Him when you get that call you don't want to get from the doctor. You can glory in God always because the Lord has welcomed you in. When Israel refused, God started looking for somebody that would accept Him. And when the insiders refused, God looked for those who would love Him. When the religious elites refused, God went after those who would love and accept Him. And it would be those that would confound the wise. The Pharisees, the scribes, they wouldn't like it. I thank thee that I'm not like this publican. God said, I'll take them. Woman, where are your condemners? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Listen, God said, I'll take you. I'll take you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart and I'll give rest unto your souls. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 puts it this way, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, those in Christ would become the priesthood that God was seeking for all along. Those in Christ would become the holy nation God was seeking for all along. Those in Christ are now His chosen generation. And no, for anybody who's going there in your mind, I am not talking about replacement theology but we who were wild by nature have been grafted into the living vine. And we are made up of every people, every race, everywhere. Listen, there is no racism in Christ. If the world would just get a hold of that, we could do away with all the nonsense we're seeing in America today. Because in Christ we're all one. And now we who have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, we are now to show the beauty of Christ upon this earth by showing forth His marvelous light. So listen, let me just say right there, don't just settle to praise God on Sunday. Did you know you can praise God Monday through Saturday as well? Whoop! That's good. Listen, He's called us out every day, not just on Sundays. And if you can't manage to praise God in here, you're not going to praise Him out there. If you can't lift up the name of the Lord in here, you're not going to do it out there. If you can't lift up your voice in here and sing, you're not going to do it out there. And the way some of y'all sing hymns is pitiful. Listen, if you can't raise up holy hands in here, you're not going to do it out there. I feel like preaching right there. Listen, we have so much to praise God for. It's not just to be confined in here. We are now the people of God. We have obtained mercy. We have obtained grace and favor in His sight. How can this be? How can it be that you and I, who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, can be accepted in Christ when the requirement is to be a pure virgin? How is that possible? Because Christ takes away all of our sinfulness. Amen? He takes away all of our sin, He takes away all of our filth, and He washes it away in His blood. We are made clean, and we are made righteous because of the sacrifice of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2 For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ." Jude verse 24, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Ephesians 5, 25-27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We can please the King because we have been made accepted in the Beloved. We may not be much to look upon on the outside outwardly. Amen? While we may not be much to look upon outwardly, I want to tell you, we have a beauty that the world doesn't possess. So are you in the Bride of Christ? The invitation is to whosoever will may come. God has made the way through Christ and He will accept all who come unto Him in simple faith and He will cleanse you and He will make you pure. And if you're in Christ tonight, are you showing forth the beauty of the bride of Christ by shining forth His marvelous light? Do you answer when you're called upon? To come and show off your beauty. Christ has made you beautiful tonight. We, we show the beauty of the bride. By showing the Christ who is altogether lovely. Amen. This world is an ugly place. And it desperately needs to see the beauty available to those in Christ. Amen. Now whether any of this tonight is truly a prophetic picture. I don't really know. But I found it intriguing enough to give it to you anyhow. And you can do with it as you see fit. So are you and the bride. Let's pray.